Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello, I'm Megan O'Hare and today I am joined for this special podcast recording from the Prediction and Prevention in Neurodegenerative Diseases Conference at Queen Mary University by three fantastic panellists who have all been attending the conference. So please welcome... Pasha Batongo, a PhD student from Queen Mary University, who can stay awake for 48 hours, apparently. Her field of study is social and ethnic determinants of dementia. Isabel Foote, also a PhD student at the Wolfson Institute for Preventative Medicine at Queen Mary London, University London. Isabel's field of interest is psychiatry and dementia, and she has an irrational fear of slugs. And finally, Dr. Harry Sathia Seelan, uh, a clinical research fellow at the Dementia Research Centre at UCL, who is in the final year of his PhD, whose area of research is resultant changes in social and emotional responses in people with neurodegenerative disorders, who one year watched 565 films, which is a lot of films. The aim of this podcast is to share what we have seen and heard throughout the day today and to explore today's main conference theme, which, as the title of the conference suggests, current issues around early detection and prevention of neurodegenerative diseases. So can we start with a quick round table from everyone, maybe Pasha? Sure. Uh, Well, I am currently focusing on the social, um, mainly on deprivation uh, aspects of dementia and ethnicity and my field revolves around finding um, risk factors that are both uh, um, increase one's risks uh, that changes with ethnicity and as well as um, preventative factors which was a current theme in today's uh, symposium. I was particularly uh, interested with Vanessa Raymond who today talked about the recent advancements in, in prevention of dementia um, particularly when it comes to memory service clinics and our approach to uh, dementia patients there so that was my key favorite part of today. Okay, great. Um, Harry? Uh, yeah, I'm Harry. So I, I'm a um, neurologist. I did my clinical training here at the Royal London Hospital and then I'm now currently in the last year of my PhD funded by the Wilson Foundation. Um, and my research has really been focusing on the changes in people's kind of social responses and emotional behavior that occur in all dementias, but particularly in a group of dementias called the frontotemporal dementias. Um, it's a group of symptoms that affect people, um, their carers, their loved ones kind of massively, but we don't really understand them that well. And actually, really importantly, we, we're not very good at picking up them and actually formally testing them, unlike things like memory and language. So in, in my particular research, what I look at is I take non-verbal emotional sounds, so the sounds of people laughing or crying, and look at the responses in both kind of healthy control people, but also people with different forms of dementia to see how it's uh, maybe different and what that can tell us about what's driving some of the changes in uh, emotional and social behaviour. Um, and kind of over today, I think overall today was really interesting. Um, as a clinician working on dementia, often, especially from other medical colleagues, I'm often told, well, it's pretty much all you do, diagnose people and then that's it you know there's no treatments there's nothing really to make it better so I think the overall theme of kind of as a positive thing looking towards um, identifying risk and uh, how that could be 
potentially important looking forward and uh, changing people's prognosis and how things progress is, is particularly interesting. Um, you said about using non-verbal cues, so laughing and then how people perceive that. Mm. Could, how early do you look in the stage of disease and could that be a biomarker because they're always looking for... Yeah, so that's really the ultimate aim. So at the moment, I do it in people with established um, different dementia syndromes, so Alzheimer's disease as well as different forms of frontotemporal dementia. The idea eventually will be to hone down, uh, because actually in my group, people look at all sorts of different kind of atypical features, atypical stimuli that could be really relevant. So I look at uh, emotional sounds, some of my colleagues look at music. Um, and the idea is that between us, we will eventually come up with tests that we will then extend out to a kind of early symptomatic or even pre-symptomatic phase. In the frontotemporal dementias, because a lot of it is genetic, well, a lot of certain forms are genetic, we have potential access to a group of people who we know are at risk of going on to develop the condition. And therefore, the tests that we currently are trying to develop in the established diseases can eventually be tried in the pre-symptomatic or early symptomatic phase. I guess that links to one of the uh, Richard Milne's talks, ethical challenges associated with prediction and prevention of Alzheimer's disease. So you will have a cohort of people who are potentially going to develop the disease and you have the ethical considerations of whether you tell them and then whether you test them. Or if you test them, you're telling them essentially that they have... Yeah, that's really true. And it's one of the big differences. So with particularly the genetic cohorts, which would be the ones that are pre-symptomatic, it's a really difficult ethical kind of quandary of um, specifically if you if you have a mutation that you know is going to cause the condition and has a high penetrance or high chance of actually causing the condition there's there's a lot that comes with that and as when people take part in the research they don't always necessarily know their genetic status so some of them choose to take part in the research without actually knowing if they're positive or negative and that's because the people that we're often studying we want control subjects as well so there is a difficulty there because the way you as a researcher behave around the person, the way in which data is handled, the way in which the person's going to respond to other tests is all going to be affected. And I think that was really brought up today, especially right now when we don't have disease modifying treatments, about how you deal with that information, um, knowing that there isn't necessarily something we can actively do about it right now Mm. but hopefully there will be in the future yeah there was that really interesting two columns he had like a pro and a cons list but the promise and the what was the other word he used problems Mm. you know the promise is you have a right to know then you have access to care and you can make decisions the problems are there is no cure so why would you find out you know with cancer you could totally understand you'd want to know you'd want to get into the system on that pathway but Mm -hmm. If there is no treatment, why are you getting the information? And it was quite interesting that he, um, was it Alistair Noyce asked the audience to put up their hands to say whether they would find out. And not very many people put up their hands, did they? I don't know whether any of you have had... I've done the 23andMe testing, yeah. This is Isabel It gives you the chance to say whether you would want to know the risk for things like dementia and Parkinson's disease and I personally did and I've got friends who also did and they found out their APOE4 status for example and actually have started doing more exercise and things like that for example so I think maybe also because 
I'm younger, it mm. seems like something that's a lot further off. So I don't know whether maybe if I was older and closer to the point, that might affect my judgment of whether I'd want to know or not. Yeah, they did mention about the closer you get to the time point where it might actually be a reality, you know, your anxiety goes up, so you're far removed from it when you're in your 20s. Yeah, exactly, and I think you kind of feel like there's a lot of of things spoken about, about healthy lifestyle and things like that, and if you know that you've got a lot of, well, probably got a lot of decades to kind of (laughs) try and do something then it's better than maybe finding out when you think oh maybe it's too Too late for me to make that difference so yeah um but what i found particularly interesting today and that wasn't quite mentioned was that um a lot of these genetic risk factors have um studies are based on predominantly um caucasian subsets Mm -hmm. and recent studies particularly concerning um where, where I'm interested in, and that um, APOE uh, for carriers, um, I think done in America for African Americans, um, aren't as predictive as your risk of getting dementia. And studies have pointed towards that, um, in fact, it's an ancestral gene, um, and that uh, within West Africa, I think there was a study done in Nigeria that um, those that had an APOE4 alley. Um, it in fact didn't increase their risk and I think that um, when it comes to prevention and particularly when we're talking about genetics that in having a holistic approach that um, one may have one of these risk factors but that get all this anxiety and worry but is it truly applicable to you considering your um, cultural and racial background and I think that that was uh, that was one of the interesting things today was that um, that no one didn't really highlight mm. was that how um, true and diverse and inclusive are these risk factors and um, are we focusing so much on them that we're not realizing that okay within different cultural groups they actually differ mm. and because um, APOE4 is the main one that you hear about um, Alzheimer's disease but very little talks about um how there may be differences in risk considering racial and uh, cultural backgrounds. I actually wanted to ask, and I realise this is relevant to you because of your study of your PhD, not just the genetic risk, but sort of a... a, They were saying today about how you find out and then you might be scared or you have anxiety, but whether that's a cultural thing in the the Western world, we have more of a fear of death. and It's not part of the culture to accept death and... I wondered whether there would be a difference between religion, race, you know, that sort of, how you perceive that risk, you know, maybe you don't see it as a risk because it's just part of ageing, the ageing process for you and your culture. Yes, I think that uh, a lot of cultural groups, um, there are differences in stigma. Mm-hmm. And I think the stigma is the main thing backing it up is that some um, cultural backgrounds is taboo to talk about dementia, they might say, I know within the um, Caribbean, they might say that, you know, it's a bad spirit. Mm. And um, there's just general lack of awareness. And more interestingly, um, even uh, ethnic minorities within um, Western countries, um, 
There's very little understanding between the difference between normal aging and dementia. So I think that um, people just don't know. And I think that when you just don't know what's going on, there's already fear there. Mm. And sometimes the fallback might be, oh, this is um, something... Uh, spiritual going on or rather that there's an element of shame and i think that uh first step will be to break down the stigma the shame being ostracized from your community for having these neurodegeneratives and that will open the space so i think that more people would want to know if they had a risk because there's no shame connected Mm -hmm. to the risk and then that opens the discussion of your fear of death but i think firstly shame and uh, being ostracized from society should be tackled first. So, Isabel, we never got around uh, yeah. to your introduction. <laughs> so, I'm also a PhD student here at the Wolfson Institute Preventative Medicine, but I'm focused more on the link between depression and dementia. So, there's a lot of literature out there, but it's quite a messy area of literature as to what the basis of the link between depression and dementia is. There's been some meta-analyses that have been performed that show that if you have depression early in life, it does increase your risk of getting dementia later in life. Mm-hmm. But then also, because you have the preclinical phase of up to 30 years, you have the problem of reverse causation and you don't know whether depression is actually part of the prodrome and it's actually a symptom of dementia but happens early on. And not everyone with depression goes on to get dementia so it's kind of my work is trying to look at kind of shared genetic and environmental pathways especially looking at inflammation and hpa axis dysfunction to try what's what's that that's um it's basically the stress function in your brain so it's the hypothalamic um pituitary adrenal axis so it basically is um, you get elevated cortisol when you're <clears throat> sorry when you are anxious, and people in who have depression, but also people who have dementia. There's been studies that have shown that they have a chronic elevated level of cortisol, and also, and so that can then also be influenced by having increased chronic inflammation. So it might be that you have these two these processes going on and if you have it early in life, say if you're depressed and you have kind of also it it's affecting your hippocampus, so then basically you end up losing some cognitive reserve that then might make you more likely to go on and get dementia later on because there's already some pathology there. So it's kind of this idea of maybe there's actual shared biological um, pathways that might be affecting similar parts of the brain. And so trying to unpick that and see whether they're mediating factors in the link between depression and dementia, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so we've sort of touched a little bit on some of the talks, but were there any ones that really stood out to you or really resonated with your own research well actually i think one of the things that was interesting that that really i found interesting but isn't directly related is that dennis chan and vanessa raymond 
both mentioned about needing better outcome measures for earlier on. And I think we use the MMSE and MOCA and things like that, the very much cognitive um, measures a lot in memory clinics at the point of diagnosis and try and use them earlier on. But actually the memory impairment probably happens after probably the psychiatric impairment. So it was interesting, this idea of trying to come up with new measures that you might use earlier on in life that might be more effective at predicting um, cognitive decline or people who are at risk. Yeah, so Dennis Chan, he did a talk on virtual reality tests of entorhinal cortex function in prodromal Alzheimer's disease, and he showed... Uh, how the VR works and, yeah, that and really the, they cool. put virtual reality on mice I know <laughs> that was very amazing cool. I just like the idea that they effectively had a mouse that was walking on a mouse trackball <laughs> yeah. moving it which is really clever just coming back to I think that that's actually really really interesting and we sometimes talk about this idea of what we call stress tests so we, we kind of took learned this a little bit from cardiac health where you may have tests on your heart function, like an ECG, um, that might prove normal. But we usually don't say that's enough. And instead, we'll put someone on a, on a treadmill to really stress the heart a bit and see that when it's really working towards its maximum, can we pick up some changes that indicates there's early problems here? And then people will get treated. So even if they haven't had any symptoms really, but there's a risk of a cardiac problem, they have a stress test, it shows there's a problem, they may have treatment. I think a similar approach is kind of being alluded to in cognitive problems in dementia, where to say, we've got our, cogn- our standard cognitive battery, which is fine when you've got established disease, or in some tests, even early stage disease, but perhaps we need to move towards the side of these stress tests that mm. pick up earlier changes that can only really be found when you when you're testing you know at the limit of what the, the, the kind of normal brain can do tests that would be way too difficult perhaps in established um, um, dementia and therefore haven't been I think in the past people often thought well we need to be able to do tests that we can kind of see how people progress over mm. time and therefore they need to be doable for people you know quite far into the condition something like the MMSC is a really good example of something that we can use to track people you know from diagnosis to maybe how they get on but those same tests are not so good in that early stage well it's not a diagnosis test is it it's more yeah as your condition progresses but um i think it was dennis chan did say that they now you know there used to be the is it the mocha test where you have to remember the certain things actually don't know anyway you remember a certain list of not letter uh, the words um and then now they're doing they phone you a week later and see if you can remember and that's an evolution of the test it used to be can you remember after five minutes and now they realize an extra step on that is phoning a week later which is so simple but it probably tells you a lot more and could pick up you know earlier in the um disease process um so Anyone else? Anything? I was similar to the kind of on a similar theme to Dennis Chan's work. I think was maybe Romana Wild stuff. So she was looking at Parkinson's disease and trying to predict who uh, in people who already have Parkinson's disease, which ones might go on to develop Parkinson's dementia. Um, so it's a slightly different prodromal thing because they've already got the condition, but you want to know if they're going to be that group within Parkinson's disease who do go on to have a dementia. And so, again, looking at this idea of stress tests, I think she was looking at this quite novel idea of 
if you take a picture of a cat or a dog and stretch it or warp it a certain amount, you can work out someone's threshold at which they can no longer differentiate it between a cat Mm. and a dog. And what she showed really cleverly, I think, is that people who go on to develop dementia have difficulty doing this test before they've actually developed dementia. So if you take people with Parkinson's who have the same cognitive baseline, those that perform worse at this test, there's a suggestion that may go on to have a higher risk of developing Parkinson's dementia. So I think, it's again, similar to Dennis Tran's idea of taking new tests, uh, you know, that are almost completely removed from the, the standard cognitive batteries we use, but are testing kind of different cognitive domains that might be affected earlier on, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah. And I think what... I think what's particularly interesting about these tests is that um, they minimize um, bias that may happen through education, language, and culture. And I think that one of the main problems in um, tracking and um, the the, the prodromal phases of um, dementia, or even making a diagnosis with some of the tests, is that... um, Memory services may be a bit more reluctant if they find that English isn't your first language or that uh, you have a lower education background because they don't understand, are you performing poorly on these tests because of other factors? And um, and in some cases where there is uh, the presence of a disease, individuals may only get diagnosed much later on um, because there is these biases. Whereas... Um, like with Dennis Chan, the virtual, I found it so cool because there's very little um, complication mm-hmm. in the instructions. It is walk it, uh, go to this point. And I think that the great thing about these tests and the visual skewed tests is that, you know, everyone knows what a cat and a dog is, you know, and that um, certain questions that he was talking about in the uh, standard battery test, you know, like priminess and things like that. Some people may not really be aware yeah. of that and or they may only be more of prime ministers from their original countries. But the great thing about this is that it could be used across all cultures. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an important need to call for um, these types of tests when we're looking, particularly at the early detection, that can be used in any country, any setting. Yeah, and it harmonizes it whereby um, we're clearer on the... Uh, I think also because it was interesting because he mentioned about how essentially the task he was doing with the virtual reality was quite similar to the Four Mountains task but was actually more effective and then he was saying about how actually it's probably because there's fewer confounding factors like you say of kind of education, IQ, things like that which is so important in cognitive decline because, you know, education comes up as one of the biggest kind of early life risk factors. So minimising that confounding factor might help. Well, because you don't start with a baseline, do you? No, you exactly. do these tests, so you're just, in a way, some of them you're are testing your education level and your IQ without yeah. you realising. We should say, for the people that weren't there, um, the virtual reality test works by you put the thing on, the mask, whatever you want to call it. He said you could Go buy them in Argos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, you're, you're told to find a cone within a landscape and you actually physically walk in a room 
while looking at virtual reality to the first cone, then you walk to the second cone, then you walk to the third cone, then you're asked to return to the first cone. So you are then using all the spatial cues, the visual cues that you've seen to try and navigate back to the first cone. So yes, like you say, it removes education or knowledge from it. You, you know, it's spatial navigation, which we all do all the time to get around our worlds. Um, and that's what they also did on the mice. I think what was also really interesting was you wouldn't just have to do virtual reality. The other thing that he spoke about was the fact that they've been developing an app that uses GPS in your smartphone mm. and that you could technically you can work out whether there's changes in someone's spatial navigation over time as to maybe and also how fast they walk and things like that which that kind of was alluded to quite a lot throughout the day in how you could have technology assisted and wearable devices and things like that and I think that's a very big area that will be important in the whole predictive and preventing um, all kinds of neurodegenerative diseases. It was interesting, there was a, um, Richard Milne at the end obviously brought in all the ethical considerations yeah. and challenges and he talked about that but also saying those companies may be heavily invested in that then they're providing you the answer so they see value in watching you walk around to then sell you something, yeah, exactly. you know, the risk yeah. I think business. it's very difficult. I think you've got to put in some sort of controls into how these things are used because in some countries I think some countries are more strict than others in putting Mm. in these regulations but it can be difficult now with the advent of the internet and things like that it's so easy to access information that might not be actually that valid right now because for instance you've got the websites where you can look up your polygenic risk scores but actually they haven't been validated in a lot of disease groups. So, And if people don't understand that, then it causes them more stress and all kinds of other factors. And it was interesting what, I think it was Alastair was saying that the Royal College of um, General Practitioners had actually kind of urged GPs mm. not to take notice of yeah. the people that come in who have had these direct-to-consumer tests, Mm. which I think that's a difficult one because, yes, there's a lot of false positives and false negatives, but the doctors are going to be the people, the first point of call that those people then go to. So that's difficult if then they don't want to give the support. I I think it's really difficult for them to say, to just dismiss and not engage with it. Because I think if you're someone's family doctor someone you know it's not like they're going to go and see lots of doctors possibly you are their regular gp i don't know how the gps can literally say i'm not gonna i'm not gonna engage with this i'm not gonna look at this Uh, we in in our clinic and i I do a cognitive clinic and in our clinic we do we are seeing now this increasing number of people who get referred in who are cognitively healthy but if i have a 23andme or alternative company report um, that that, is, that has mentioned, for example, their APOE4 status or, or their polygenic risk. So uh, we are seeing them now. And I think perhaps, you know, dealing with the potential increase in numbers and which services are going to deal with that is is a really difficult one. You know, on the one hand, I'd say to a GP, well, if you're unsure about how to interpret this, then perhaps referring to a specialist 
areas the way to go but then I don't know how who knows what knock-on effect that could have to the mm. specialist services because if you've got to wait then eight months until you see a specialist that's a bit suboptimal um, but I think it does need to be discussed with people um, and we have to accept I think as Alistair was saying that people are this technology is available mm. and as much as we try and caution people about it, people are going to want to have yeah. these tests done. And therefore, as a medical profession and those involved in these conditions, we need to kind of start thinking about how they're going to address that. Mm. You know, Instead so of that, just stepping back and yeah, saying, that we're not. Because I don't think you can, because the person's going to want to see another um, you know, health professional at some point, and you can give them some context. And surely it's better they do see a health professional than mm. that we just said, exactly. search yeah, on the exactly. internet for yeah. someone else's interpretation who's not yeah. clinically trained. Because or... it kind of ties to another thing that was coming up quite a lot today, which is this idea of kind of more personalised medicine, mm. which I think kind of cuts across a lot of what we've been talking about in terms of ethnic differences, um, differences in your socioeconomic status, difference in your educational background. The idea that when we're looking at risk, when we're looking at... Um, information about kind of pre-symptomatic testing it's really important to think of the individual and where putting that information in context um, rather than trying to just get this information quite blanketly and disseminate it to people without really necessarily thinking about the impact it could have um, one thing that comes up I think with with the tests and the idea of coming up with cross-cultural tests is also when we think about trials there's a real worry that we're going to be excluding a large proportion of society from trials because mm. they are going to rely... So I know, for example, a lot of Alzheimer's trials, trials rely on a certain MMSE score. That MMSE score will often, whether you're referred into a trial or not, will come from the person in clinic doing the MMSE score. And how far they decide to go with a translator with mm. is a little bit, you know, up at the discretion of the clinic to some extent. Well, also, like, um, Father, you said about certain cultures don't come forward early enough or aren't in the system early enough or this is something that comes up a lot we've talked about people so their score is going to be not correct yeah. for the clinical trial yeah. though but too far along yeah. or not far along you know there's also the, the differing approaches not only to the diagnosis but in terms of what can be done mm-hmm. uh, you'd never want to generalize but there are certain trends you sometimes see in clinics where people may come along and be given a diagnosis but because there isn't a curative treatment at the moment they might disengage from mm. healthcare because the appro- the kind of attitude towards healthcare well is I come to the clinic for a treatment. If there isn't a treatment, I don't need to come to clinic anymore. Which? And which is really difficult because that doesn't take into consideration what we're talking about here, which is the idea of how you may be able to modify, you know, how rapidly it progresses or the, engage with the support that would be there even with an established diagnosis. Mm. So it's it is about I think perhaps yeah getting a bit. I think that's one of the areas where this kind of concept of the brain health clinics might be useful because it seems like the idea behind it is more focused on kind of lifestyle factors and general factors and kind of maintaining brain health rather than really focusing specifically on the disease and saying you're here for the disease it's about prevention and prediction and things and I feel like maybe that is a good way to go on in terms of a systems level because it's almost like society's going that direction anyway of their own accord by using all these apps that there are out there. Mm. And maybe that's the way that the medical system and the healthcare systems can actually provide the support 
that's necessary with how we're looking at these diseases now because it's only really a recent phenomenon that people have started looking at dementia as a disease and not just an aging process so I think that is one of maybe that came up a couple of times today as well and I think there's been other events recently I've been to where they've brought that up so maybe if they trial that in some areas and that works it could be a good way forward I think it was it Carol Brain brought up that actually it's very difficult to change people's behaviour yeah. so you know you can have a clinic you can't get people to come if they come they might not change their behaviour yeah. so and I think that was because Seb Kohler, when he did his talk about the My Brain Coach app, what was really good about that is the fact that it really focuses on kind of achievements and challenges and it's very personalised. So it was saying, I think there was three different scores where you had something that you were doing really well at and didn't need to worry about, something else that you could work on and then something to do with chronic comorbidities and kind of that kind of focus so that is something where maybe it's it could complement and kind of try to continue the usage and the interest of people over time after they've seen a doctor in a brain health clinic for example and keep them engaged because I think he said that they'd been engaged for quite a while and it carried on using the app so maybe that and it's quite an easy thing you don't have to go into a clinic you can just have the information Mm -hmm. and if something pops up as being you know something's changed and it's a red flag then maybe then they could get called back and Mm -hmm. sort of follow up with the doctor yeah because what carol said she said if you know your genetic or phenotypic risk it doesn't doesn't change your behavior but we don't know from that whether they were given an app whether they were given you know monitoring along the way or just told and then you know a year later asked have you changed your behavior and passively also and i think that uh, like one of the audience members uh questioned her was that uh were these people who already knew that they were at high risk mm-hmm. so the information that you were adding was it novel or they already knew it was that why yeah. and i think that you know the recent um interest in people wanting to know you know their genetic risks and stuff um we shouldn't overlook that people are trying to be empowered to know that they have some sense of control or contribution and i think that um when advising about you know general like brain health Mm -hmm. and um giving people a chance a way in which to measure engage because you can say okay exercise more and uh, you know eat more of your veg- veggies but how much is that going to help me and I think that if an individual goes and gets a diagnosis for let's say uh, dementia or Parkinson's having a means in which to know that okay I can still improve or if they find out that they have a genetic risk I have something that I like I'm still in control in some way or form but now for people to just redirect it in a way whereby these lifestyle risk factors, um, particularly since they most of which um, vascular ones start in midlife, you do have a sense of control and you do have a way in which, but in like ways that keep them engaged, you know, mm-hmm. like how much should I run? How much should I exit? And how will that 
individually affect me personally yeah and at what stage as well because I think one of the interesting things that came up again a few times today was the idea that you have biomark you might have biomarkers or risk factors at different stages of life that are important and that that's really important in preventing because you might you know I think they talk about midlife obesity being kind of more of a risk factor than have being obese late in life for example so I think that would be a really important thing as well where you could maybe have a timeline or something Mm -hmm. of things that where it might increase that's what you focus on because that person's at that age and so it's not kind of bombarding a person with every single thing they've got to do all their life but maybe have you know in your midlife, you've got to focus on some one thing more, and then later in life, that might adapt, and that might be a bit more manageable than having this constant bombardment of you've got to have every single thing healthy, because for a lot of people, that can be quite challenging. And also, especially in people, I think one of the things that could potentially be one of the areas in which depression might get linked with dementia is if you're depressed, you're far less likely to live a healthy lifestyle and you become much more socially isolated and you might not care so much about what you eat and doing exercise and things like that. So all these things really kind of intermingle and that's where it's good to have a kind of personalised regime, I think, that to the point in time. And also, um, I think it was Alistair at the end said about you know, cardiovascular risks have gone down and cardiovascular disease has gone down and that was possibly in part to do with public health messaging. And if you can link dementia to that because it's already shown to be successful, then, you know, you're not just seeing them at the clinic where maybe it's too late. This is a public message that gets out there earlier. And so you say it's a life course thing, talking holistically about your whole life. With the cardiovascular, that shows that actually people can change their behaviours because people have started trying to eat more healthily and although not everyone might at all points there's definitely trends if you look at population level that there's behaviour changes and also things like reduction in smoking that was just that was through a lot of um, health promotion health education and I think if you start to bring in these things at a level where a lot of people will see them, then maybe you will get some behaviour change anyway, and then you might target it more at a personalised level and find out who might be needing that extra support and who might just do it automatically on their own. Okay, great. Has anyone got any final comments about the day? Just it was a great day, and yeah. the, the drinks are starting soon. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I think it was a fantastic uh, day. Um, I love that there was a range between these um, neurodegenerative conditions. And um, one thing I do wish was that um, there were more members of the public there. And I think it's important to note, because some people ask me when I tell them about the symposium, that a lot of these talks are free, you know, and that um, it's not like you're in a room of people who will judge if you ask a question. And everyone really explained thoroughly, you know, so I think that 
there's some stigma that sometimes these sorts of talks is just for academics and people who understand but i think that if more members of the public got engaged um got in contact or just emailed some of the people that they see like we're kind <laughs> we want to talk about this because it's important and um but i think those people missed out <laughs> okay great thank you very much and please subscribe to our podcast bye this was a podcast brought to you by dementia researcher everything you need in one place register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk